Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm Michael. I'm a compulsive overeater. It's, uh, it's good to be uh, it's good to be safe and sober in a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and I thank God for my abstinence and my sobriety. I'm very grateful. Whenever I ask, ask to speak at a, an OA meeting, I always start by saying how much I love Overeaters Anonymous because I really love this program and I want to welcome the newcomers uh, to this program. Um, it's very dear to me and I, I hope you find what I've found in this program and that's, that's freedom and a bit of peace. I think that's, what I'm, that's why I come to these meetings. So, Giselle just said to me, you're going to have a long time to speak. That's never been my problem, Giselle, so don't worry about that. You're going to have to shut me up. I'm very passionate about the steps, and I'm also a very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous as well, and um, I come to both OA and AA meetings in this room. In fact, my favourite number is 219, because this is room 219, and this is where I met Martha, my fiance. Uh, met her, she was sitting over there, just behind Catherine. And uh, you know, I got—I uh, did, yeah—I got sober and abstinent, and and uh, this is my home group, and I'm very grateful. And there's people in this in this room that uh, you know I have a lot of respect for. And I remember my first meeting, my first light a candle meeting, which was in the end of January 2008. And it was a particularly bad time, a very bleak period for me. I hit the bottom, and um, there was a little bit of glimmer and hope. And I remember Mickey was here, you know, he's been a stellar pillar of this, pro- this this meeting for as long as I can remember, he does a lot of good, and he was he was my first sponsor actually, and he, uh, he was the first person I reached out to on one very depressing Sunday evening and he called me back within 15 minutes and I thought, wow, somebody calling me back and asking how I'm doing, and I remember Leslie, uh, I think they were, they were the only two people that were, uh, that were here from that first meeting I went to and you know, Leslie uh, has a has a, an impact on my life. She doesn't realise because she sponsors Martha. So uh, <laughs> whenever, whenever whenever I have an argument with Martha, I'll go. You need to run that by Leslie, uh, and it, that doesn't go down too well, actually. So. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I never really know what I'm going to say. And um, David, before I get into this, thank you. Uh, for asking me to, to come and share it at my favourite meeting, and uh, it's great to see the progress that you, you're making in, in the programmes that we're in together. It really is a, a joy to see the, the recovery and the people that you help as well, so I'm grateful for that. Um, so I never know what I'm going to say, but uh, I, was, I was thinking, I wish I could tell you all that uh, my obsession to compulsively overeat has been removed. <coughs> And I tiptoe through life, happy, joyous, and free. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem with food. And I've got this amazing recovery. And, and uh, I do have the amazing recovery, not by me, but by the grace of God in this program. But I do suffer from the compulsive thoughts of eating. And I stu- do still love food. And I still have food dreams, you know, I really do. And, um, you know, I was sharing uh, the other night, I got them all laughing. You know, Martha's uh, Jewish. And, uh, 
you know, her uncle, uh, she's got a Jewish family here in Los Angeles, and, and uh, apparently it's the big Jewish holiday coming up, right? Even though Erin was laughing at me that I, that, yeah, I should, should know that, but I didn't. And uh, so she called me last week, we went to dinner at her uncle's house, and Jewish people love food. You know, I think I was Jewish in a previous life. I really do. And when I go to this house where relatives are, they, they talk really loudly to one another. And they talk in Hebrew. And it's like, I think they're arguing with one another. I'm like, Michael, what, do they not get on or something? And they don't. It's just the way the Israelis talk to one another, like scream and yell, and it's all food. And then they, they have a little prayer before the food, and they get this bread out. And bread is not, bread is kind of like a yellow-like food for me. I'll describe what my absence is shortly. But, you know, this bread comes out and they say a little prayer. And, and, you know, I always feel kind of like I'll insult anybody at a Jewish meal if I don't try the bread, right? So I try this bread and it, oh, it's, God, it's delicious. It just melts in your mouth. And last week we were there, last Saturday night, and the, the, the main part of the meal was really healthy and hummus, because I love hummus and salad and all that. And then the bread comes out, and, I'm try- and then they gave me the sweet bread, and I tried that, I was like, oh God. And it kind of triggered me a little bit. There was something about it that, and I could feel the disease in me at that moment in time. And I reached out for the first slice, and then I had a second slice. And as I was reaching out to the third slice, Martha looks at me and goes, no, no. (laughs) And my head was like, F you, you know. It's like, how dare you tell me how many slices of bread I can have. And that's the great thing about having a life partner in OA, you know. It's like, she does keep me on track. And, And I'm looking at this bread, and it's got a power over me. And I stop engaging with the people around me at the table. And I, st- and I just think about this bread, and that is the disease of compulsive overeating. And I start getting anxious. And I start, I start getting resentful to Martha, because I can't have that slice of bread. And then I start feeling bad about myself. And then I'm just out of the game, I'm out of the meal, and, I'm, and I feel bad, and I, I don't feel good about it. And, you know, I come out and I say to her, I don't feel good about that. And she went, look, you know, you're, you're okay. And I hear this a lot in a way. You need to have a winning abstinence, right? I've met people who've reset their time because they've had a can of soda, mm-hmm. all right? We, this is a tough disease. And, and as long as, you know, I say to my sponsees in step one, we define what the abstinence is. And as long as I'm sticking to that abstinence, then there's going to be days where I have a couple of slices of bread and feel bad about it. There's going to be a day that I've had a really rough day and I'm in Whole Foods and I love those peanut butter perfect protein bars, right? And I'll have one. I'll have one. As long as I'm not having two and three and I'm sitting eating them all day, you know, that's my abstinence. And I think it's really important to describe what abstinence is because we, as people, we are such perfectionists. And if it's not all clean and white and lily and, and everything's perfect, it's, it's trash. And, it, and I don't let my sponsees reset the time when they want to reset the time. We define their abstinence in step one. And we talk about it. You know, if we're having a tough time, we talk about it. But obviously there's certain behaviours that if I'm engaged in, um, and it's a break in abstinence, then I have to be honest and truthful about it. So it's different to Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm at a meal and I'm having a glass of wine, I'm not sober, right? I mean, but a slice of bread, I don't know. Because somebody came out after the, meal, uh, after the meeting the other night and went, you had a couple of slices of bread? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm abstinent. I'm at a healthy weight. 
and I'm happy and joyous and free. Not at that particular time, but right now. And I can share it with you open and honestly. So what's my abstinence? Well, I, I define my abstinence with uh, red, yellow and green light foods. And red foods are alcoholic foods that I really need to avoid. And those are things, fast food, chocolate. I'm British. We love our chocolate, right? I can't eat those things. If I eat those things, I've broke my absence because I can't stop. Because I have this allergy, right? Obsession of the mind, I have this physical allergy. I just can't stop. So, you know, I define my red light, my yellow light, and my green light foods. But there's also behaviors that I really need to avoid in order to stay abstinent. So one of those things is I don't go in fast food restaurants. I don't go in McDonald's. I don't go in and and out. Okay, I don't go in Wendy's. I just don't go in there because there's something about going in those places. The smell is triggering to me. And it just reminds me of such depressing times when I was in the food because I weighed 333 pounds. That was my top weight. When I walked in that door, I was over 300 pounds. Today, you know, I'm a 100 pounder. I hear this. And I've kept maintained that weight for, for eight years. A hundred pound weight loss, which statistically is absolutely impossible medically, it is just about impossible. So, and that is because of Overeaters Anonymous. So, the other things that I avoid is I don't eat late at night in a diner. The misery, I can remember the misery of eating in a diner late at night and, and squeezing into the booth on my own. Every time, I always ate on my own. I never, ever gorged in front of other people. You know, and I'd sit there, you know, like, eating and, like, order some food, you know, and it was always fried food and milkshakes and all that stuff. And, you know, then I, what I would do is I'd go out to my car and I'd, I'd feel so bad and I would open the car door and I'd throw it all up and all this vomit would go down the side of the car and I used to scoop vomit out from inside the car door. And, you know, this is where this disease took me. So I just don't, I don't, you know, I don't throw up anymore. I don't eat in diners late at night. I don't go in fast food places. I don't eat fast food anymore. You know, I eat healthy. 95% of the time I eat really healthy. You know, this morning I get up, I have a bowl of fruit. I went for a run. You know, I, had, I went to a meeting in this room this morning. And then, you know, I uh, had a big salad for lunch, you know, and I, I've started learning about food, you know, I, I've started learning, not cook, but I'm, I'm good with doing salads anyway, so <laughs> artichokes and, and, you know, I put all these real cool things, organic, you know, I go up to Whole Foods and I come back with my bag of, of fruit and veggies and I feel good when I've eaten healthy and clean. I feel, I feel safe and I feel, I feel free and I feel peaceful and um, it's a great feeling abstinence. It's a really great feeling. And I could never stand up in front of you if I wasn't, you know, eating abstinently and tell you that. I couldn't look you in the eye because I had so much shame. The other big part of my abstinence is um, um, I've always got to be very, very honest with my sponsor. If I can't put it in an email and send it to him at the end of the night, then I shouldn't be eating it. And I've always, always, you know, been very, you know, email my food into different sponsors for the last eight years, every single night, no matter whether I'm traveling, you know, I always email my food in and I'm absolutely honest about what I've put down, you know, what I've eaten that day. So that's kind of my abstinence. People ask me that. Um, but there's a much deeper thing to it than, than eating clean. You know, I've got to really get beyond why I was a compulsive overeater. And I, I was talking to Vida earlier today and I was like, you know, I remember, you know, I was, I, I was born with this disease. When I was a little kid, um, my mother used to say that whenever, you know, I was like a toddler in a pram or whatever, 
and uh, people would come up to me and, and you know like they do to babies and smile and I'd burst into tears and uh, I didn't like people right I didn't want them holding me or coming up and I just didn't and, I, and you know I've carried that through my life to be honest with you I don't really like a lot of people I'm just being honest and it's part of my disease and I've really had to learn to, to connect with you because one of the biggest problems I have as a compulsive overeater alcoholic is forming any kind of true relationship with you as I'm always thinking about myself and what I can get from you you know or I'm suspicious of you you know and, and, and there's no joy there's no living in that you know and, and Alcoholics Anonymous particularly in Overeaters Anonymous has helped me you know kind of bridge those gaps and people find that very strange because I work in sales and I've been quite successful at it because I'm very personable with people but it's because I'm going to get something from you <laughs> I, can be, I can be extremely charming to you right as long as I know I'm going to come off good right but if I need to give something to you not expect anything back it's a little bit difficult for me and I've learned to do that, sponsoring people in OA and AA. And it brings me such great joy. You know, I've got a couple of them. I'm really lucky at the moment. I've got several sponsees in, in the both programs, and, and they're all fantastic. They're all working really hard. A couple of them are in here today. You know, Rachel sent me a food every day for years and years, and I look at it, and it's just amazing. I started working with... With, uh, with other people in the room as well and you know really conscious about the steps and really willing and really serious about recovery and it's, it's a joy to meet with them you know I don't, I don't feel it's a, you know, a, a huge challenge for me anymore and I just try and give back to them what was so freely given to me starting with Mickey and then it moved on to Walter G and I remember Walter that used to come to this meeting and you know I've got a good life today I have a really good life but it wasn't always the case. So I want to talk a little bit about what it was like and then move into how I, I work this program on it uh, each day, day by day, and the day that I'm in. We hear a lot of that in, in AA. So, you know, food has, always been a, food has always been a real medication for me. I grew up, you know, in an alcoholic home. You've heard the story a hundred million times and, you know, witnessed my mother being dragged around the room by the head of her hair and my father was this violent alcoholic and then my brother took over that mantle and then my sister bulimic and it was, you know, not a very happy, safe, you know, home to grow up in and, you know, I, I remember going to school, Catholic school and, um, you know, nuns just scared the life out of me, you know, in, in Britain and there were like these big tall women and dressed in black and one used to carry a bell around with her and it's like, Jesus, it's like Satan looking at me. <laughs> and uh, they used to put us in this big circle as little kids and I hated sitting in the circle. You know, why should I sit in that circle with the rest of those kids, defiant alcoholic I was? And this is like six years of age and I used to hate them telling me what to do and I just, you know, I did not want to be part of the group but I so desperately did. And I so desperately did want to be part of the group, but I just didn't as well. And that's the curse of, 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 of this disease as well. But I used to love when it came to lunchtime or break time, because in Britain you'd get a bottle of milk. I don't know if they do this in America. And you'd get some cookies. And I used to steal other people's cookies and milk, and it just made me feel better. And I used to actually like going to school because it was that time for the cookies and milk. And I would, I would stuff my pockets with these chocolate cookies and I'd all chocolate down the side of my school uniform. And that's like, that's not really normal behaviour for a six or a seven year old, you know. And then it carried on. And um, I remember I woke up the other night thinking about this. When I was about eight, I started getting fat. 
and uh, it, we had athletics at school, you know, school sports days, and um, I started getting fat. Nobody wanted me on the team, and it, it really upset me, right? You know, nobody wanted me on the team, and it, the, I ended up having a one-on-one race with this girl at school who was pardon phrase, had learning difficulties, right, and they set me up against her, and she beat me in this race, and everybody laughed at me, you know, you let a girl beat you, and she's kind of spaced out, and she's fat as well, and I remember that her about that, and then I'd go to the other extreme, so as I got into my teen years, then I started, you know, really working out all the time, and it was exercise, believe me, I'd be lifting weights, and I'd be in great shape at 15, 16, playing rugby and soccer, and it, and it just yo-yo going from being a beast to being super fit to a beast. And it was like nothing was ever in the middle. And I never, ever had a normal relationship with food. And my sister, who was bulimic, who was a few years older than me, this was our relationship. We'd compare diets. I mean, that was my sister. We'd compare diets. And I knew she was throwing up in the bathroom because I could smell the vomit. So I started doing it. And, you know, it's kind of tragic even talking about it. But it is what it is, and it's my story, and it's what brought me in here. And a lot of pain, that the eating disorder, took me to a very, very dark place. You know, it brought me down. And you couple alcoholism with bulimia, oh boy, you know, you're, you're the, the gates of hell are clanging behind you. They really are. So, you know, I first came to America... It, playing soccer and, and coaching soccer. I was really fit at the time, 21, 22. And I remember coming into New York and looking around me at these skyscrapers and, you know, I just loved America. I loved New York. We're up in Boston. And I thought, I'm going to live in America. You know, this is the one place I'm going to come to America. I just loved it. And I uh, spent the summer with all these families in New England and it was just amazing. And I've kept in touch with these people 20-odd years later. And then Fast forward a few years, an opportunity came for me to come to America and with, with my partner at the time, uh, who was a nurse. She, you know, we came out to California and, and um, you know, it was just hell. You know, the relationship was awful and, you know, I just, I was in this apartment in Torrance and, you know, all I used to do all day, I didn't have a job because I wasn't legal and I just, you know, sat and ate you know, all day, you know, fast food places and just on my own and I just could not stop eating and I just got fatter and fatter and fatter and I was like, you know, I don't get on the scale and, you know, obesity, when, you, when you're in that place, you know, you just, you just pull yourself out of the game of life, you know, you, don't, you can't be intimate, I mean, you can't even look at yourself in the mirror, so you, it's not like you're going to be intimate with your partner, um, you know, couldn't get a job um, you know I got turned down for jobs because I was so overweight people look at you differently when you're overweight than when you're not especially in Los Angeles and um, you know the messages I mean LA's I love living here but talk about a city that every day you get a message of how little you've got compared to everybody else right I mean drive down Sunset Boulevard there's six packs everywhere women I, I you know I I have such compassion for, you know, the messages coming at you all the time, the looking good, being thin, you know, the way you, you know, it's just constant barrage into, into, into you and, you know, it fuels that disease, it fuels the eating disorder. So here I was in America and I was just getting a be- bigger and bigger and bigger and I just could not stop eating. I could not stop eating. And, uh, you know, I was going back and forth doing geographics and I was just lost. You know, I was lost. I had no sense of purpose in my life. And the loneliness, 
that an eating disorder brings you to. Because, you know, when I was drinking, I had some good times when I drank. I had some great times, actually. Not towards the end, but I had some good times. I can't remember ever having a good time stuffing my face. I mean, talk about being completely isolated on your own at night in your apartment, in a dingy apartment in Pasadena, stuffing my face with pizza, right, and chocolate, and waking up in the morning and just saying, I'm never going to do that again, and just, I could not look at myself in the mirror, I was just like, I just, it was awful, and, you know, my, my jeans would rub together, and I'd get holes the inside of my legs, because I was that overweight, you know, and this is where it took me, you know, a real dark place, and, you know, the bottom, the, the, the dark before the dawn was, um, you know, t- November 2007. I was working in this awful job for this bank, the mortgage bank, right? And it was just before 2008, the fall of the month. You know, it was this awful job. And I was working with these awful people. And I was just sitting in this cube on my own, crunching these numbers and just, like, stuffing my face all day. And they sent me on a course to Boston on the East Coast and I remember coming out of this course going I hate this job and I hate these people and somebody said do you want to come and have a drink should we go and have a, a drink and we're in Boston went, went into this Irish bar and I went I'm just going to have one that's it I'm going to have one drink and then go back to my hotel room and four days later I woke up uh, in another hotel room in another part of Boston and I could not remember any of the previous four days and that's scary and I woke up and I remember I couldn't find my wallet and my phone was buzzing on a table and there was a pile of vomit next to me and a half uneaten chicken kebab on the other side and I, I was just in absolute fear and it was the worst feeling I was completely alone thousands of miles away from home a long way away from California and just I just didn't you know I just thought I wish I just wish my life would end and I remember my boss was calling me and my, my Blackberry was buzzing on the table and I picked the phone up and she was, where are you? It's Monday morning, you're supposed to be at work and I was still in Boston, hung over and couldn't remember anything and I didn't, you know, I was just in such fear and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm still in Boston, I'm coming back and she went, you need to get on the next plane and come and see me in the morning and I thought, this is it, I've lost my job you know, I don't have any money as it is, what am I going to do now and I remember getting on the plane and I weighed 300 pounds, over 300 pounds at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I got it sat into the seat. And so this is incomprehensible demoralization. I could not fit the seat belt around me. I could not fit it around me. And I, the same shirt on I'd been wearing for four days, lost all my, my clothes. And I'd wet myself. And, and that's where it took me. You know, that's where it took me. And the woman next to me was just looking at me. And, and I, I remember running to the back and throwing up and, and um, I just looked out the plane window and just thought I wish this plane would just crash with me in it, I can't go on but you know God sends his angels in human form and the woman who I was reporting to um, was a, a member of Al-Anon and I didn't know and she said to me I came in the office and she went I've really had to go the extra mile to keep you in a job and she said uh, you know, you're a good guy, she said, you've got a lot of problems, and you, you, you really should think about maybe going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, even at that point, the alcoholic ego was like, I can deal with this. I've kept my job, I, I'm going to deal with this, I'm going I'm to deal with this. And she went, you need to go and take a couple of weeks off, paid leave, and you need to go and sort yourself out. And I stopped drinking, 
But the food blew up when I stopped drinking alcohol and I spent that entire Christmas just stuffing my face and just wanting to die. And uh, a friend said, you know, I'll take you, and I was so scared about going to AA, he said, I'll take you to a meeting. And it was like just after Christmas of 2007 and I was living in this dingy apartment. I had no money, uh, over 300 pounds, no friends, uh, just nothing. And... uh, you know, a, a family in Cagle Canyon took great pity on me and this friend who brought me to AA. And we went into this AA meeting and, you know, they were so kind to me. You know, and I identified as a new, you know, he, he nudged me, he said, get your hand up, newcomer. And I put my hand up and everybody just swarmed to me at the end of the meeting and were giving me cards and, you know, come and have a coffee with us and, you know, come and hang out with us and da da da. And it was just the kindness that I felt in this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can never repay that kindness. Ever. And uh, uh, the, the following week, um, I typed in eating disorder into Google. And it came up with Overeaters Anonymous. And I went to my first OA meeting in Glendora. And somebody at that meeting said, there's an Irish guy in Brentwood. Uh, He says, this meeting, and and it's called Light a Candle. You want to go over there, nice people. You know, they hang out, they have a coffee before. And, you know, there's another guy called Walter over there, a lot of recovery, you know. And I went, okay, where is it? It's in Brentwood. And I had no idea where Brentwood was. I was living the other side of, of Los Angeles. So I drove over here, and it was a day like this, actually, I think, in January, and I, I sat on the steps of the bank across the street and, um, you know, I was, uh, I was just sitting there and I had this slight glimmer of hope because I'd been going to AA. And um, I just thought, God, this is such a beautiful place. I'd love to live here. This is just fantastic. And there was all these healthy, fit people running up San Vincente Boulevard, head to toe in Lululemon. You know, you get the picture. The Soul, the soul Cycle crew, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And... Uh, and uh, I just thought, oh, it would be great to be fit and healthy and running up and down here. And then this guy ran past with his girlfriend, and I went, oh, it would be great to have a girlfriend. Wouldn't it be nice to have a girlfriend? Fast forward eight and a half years, I live around the corner now. I just bought a place on Westgate. Sorry, I'm in Lululemon. <laughs> and uh, I run up and down San Vincente Boulevard and run up there this, this morning. And I don't tell that to be egotistical glow. It's just these are the little promises that come to light, come to fruition when you do the work. You know, when you give back, when you turn up on time, when you put the chairs out. And I tell my sponsors, my sponsees, you know, you know, join the dots here. You know, if you go to a meeting and you're friendly and you're, you're welcoming and you put your hand out to the newcomer and you remember the name, remember that newcomer's name and, and be kind. You don't need to be like throwing the program down the throat. Just be kind to them and just be, you know, show them what it's doing for you. And amazing things happen when you do these little tiny things. And my, my AA sponsor, me and Mickey, shared the same AA sponsor, Dan, Dan Fanti, who passed away last year. What a, what a great guy, Mickey. And he, and he would say to me, Michael, there's, um, there's three things you need to do in program, uh, three principles by which to live by. And he said, first of all, always put your hand out to the newcomer and remember their name. And I have a terrible trouble remembering people's names because I'm always thinking about myself, right? I'm always in my head, right? And uh, so I, when I hear a name, I kind of like, 
I, I think about a relative who's got the same name and then I remember their names or somebody that I like with the same name and uh, I try and put my hand out to them and then you said the second thing you need to do is you need to find a God and you need to make God your best friend and he said in the morning when you get up before you even go to the bathroom get on your knees and say the seven step prayer which is my favourite prayer my favourite prayer and the St Francis prayer and I, I carry my little big book which Walter bought for me way back, you know, eight and a half years ago and I've carried this in my back pocket ever since and I carry the St Francis prayer in it and I, I open it up when I'm in a place of alcoholism during the day I open it up and I'll just read a page and I'll say the St Francis prayer to me and I really try and build that relationship with God and it really helps the bumps in the road come out of daily life when I do that and you say, you know, when you, when you go into work and you get to your car I want you to run around and open the car door he used to tell you that to do that as well. Open the car door and tell God to get in with you. And I'm like, Dan, you've got to be crazy. What if somebody sees me? You know, what if somebody sees that? I said, just try it. Try it. And at the time, he used to wear a wristwatch. And he'd say, right, you're left-handed, so put it on your right hand. And when you go and look at your watch, just check in with him. Oh, well, what do I say, Dan? He said, well, say the first few words of the St. Francis prayer. You know, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. Or just say something like, hey God, just checking in with you, need you right now. When you're in a restaurant, you know, with people, hey God, can you just help me with this menu? Or when you're dealing with a difficult person at work, God, can you, can you help me with that person? Not that I'm looking at you for any reason, Aaron. You know, <laughs> I don't find you difficult at all. Uh, and I started really working at this habit of like really building that, that conscious contact. And things started getting really good. My food started cleaning up. And I just started feeling a lot of hope. And then the ego comes back, right? Then the, the, the kind of ego, like, hey, I'm in charge now, I've got it going. You know, job's going well, lost all the way, got a girlfriend, live in Brentwood, you know. And the mind is just working against me all the time. And I stopped doing that. You know, it's a quick bookend prayer in the morning, so I've got to get out. You know, I've got a, I've got a client to visit, I've got to chase that dollar. Right, you know, I've got to get moving, success, American dream. You know, this is all the crap that's going on in my head. And I just say a quick St. Francis prayer, and then off I go. And then the bumps in the road start appearing, right? The traffic gets too much, and that guy cut me off, and the speaker of that meeting was dreadful. And, you know, the secretary needs to do a much better job at that AA meeting. In fact, I need to be speaking to that AA meeting. You know? <laughs> and and, and that's, that, that AA meeting down on the Thursday night in Brentwood, it's not that friendly, you know. They're not that friendly. You know, not that I'm being friendly either, you know. So, and these are the things that start happening when I pull away from God and, and start taking charge. Step three, right? It's like, I've got to make a decision. Ten minutes. Told you. Could talk for another hour on this. And so, you know, I have to get back into that place of, of really giving back all the time. And then the third, th the third thing that Dan told me was, um, you know, give back whenever you can. And again, that's, that's tough. You know, it's tough because, you know, by nature my DNA is like, what can I get from you? You know, and there's a, an underlying fear. I don't know where it came from that I am going to miss out and I'm not going to get what I deserve. And so I've got to be one step ahead of you. And sometimes that works in the, in the business world, but it doesn't work anywhere else. And it always comes back to hurt me. And it never makes me feel good about myself. And it pulls me away from this program. And then, you know, the, the, the protein bars in Whole Foods start calling me. And Rosh Hashanah, 
the bread starts crawling in. All right, and and it, you know you can't get away with it as a compulsive overeater. And I I, I want to stay happy, joyous, and free. I want to stay at a healthy weight. I want to have this life. I'm very very serious about my life. Though I have a good time, and I really want to. You know, uh, I do want to help people. I do want to give back to people and give what was given to me. Because I've had some great sponsors over the last eight and a half years, you know, in, in AA and OA. Some really good people. And I've met some really, really good people. And uh, you are my family. You know, I don't have any family in, in America. And OA and AA is my family. And, you know, I'm going to open it up for questions and, and stop talking. Because, um, you know, I was talking to, to Vida about this today. And... and you know, I call my mother. I don't have a. I still don't have a great relationship with my family. You know, we've all got the addiction. None of them are in, in programming. You know, I've gone over there, and, and they all know I'm in AA. I don't, I don't think I've talked about OA. They know I'm in it because I just don't think they'd understand that. Um, and I've tried to, you know, share the message with them, and it, it hasn't. It just hasn't responded to that. And I call my mother. I try and call her every couple of weeks, and, but I do find it really painful, you know, because it starts off well, and I pray, I get on my knees before I pray, and I, I'm like, just be a kind son to her, and understand she's sick, you know, and she's going through her things, and she's been through the mill with alcoholics, I mean, how could you not be, right, I'm treated how and on, and it starts off, and today it started off well, and then I can see the, the, the kind of toxic, it, how it goes, and then it, the little jabs at me, and I've just got to remember I can't jab back at her, right? And and I just like, you know, and I'm, I'm on mute. God, help me here. Help me here. Just help me be kind to her. And then, you know, I tell her I love her. You know, I, I love you very much. And she tells me that. And, you know, I put the phone down. And then I, don't, I just don't feel good afterwards. I feel, um, I feel a lot of sorrow for her and my family that they didn't find what I found here in, in a way in AA. Yeah. Um, I don't often get that emotional. It's this room and this meeting. But um, I will share this. Uh, two years ago, I went back to Britain. I've been back a few times and, and done a really thorough nine-step and uh, I don't know if I can share this because it gets really emotional but um, uh, I went back to my father's grave uh, and left a big book on his grave and uh, just told him I wish he'd found it and uh, and I took Mark with me and I just I just broke down and uh, you know I just prayed that um, that God would keep me in Alcoholics Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous and that I never go back out there and suffer that pain that I've had before because um, I I never want to go back there I never want to go back there so 
I'm sorry I've got oh, kind of emotional. You know, I wanted to keep it very upbeat for a newcomer, but I needed to share my truth with you today. And, you know, I'll finish on this. I'm very, very grateful for my life today. And I'm very grateful for you. And uh, I'm going to keep coming back. <laughs> Thanks. can compose myself a little bit so uh, if there are any questions go ahead thanks Michael um, can you tell me about your relationship with your higher power before program and how you come to know you guys you know today yeah that's a great question um, question was what was my relationship with my higher power like before and what's it like now um, I didn't really have a relationship with God before I, I, I always believed in God but I never really thought he believed in me and uh, I prayed now and again, but I was just, uh, you know, I just felt God was like this all damning God that, you know, would never forgive the things that I'd done. And I'd done some really low things in my disease, you know, and, um, and today that is not the God I've got today. You know, uh, my God today is an all forgiving, all loving God and is always there and never turns his back on any of his kids. And uh, if I keep close to him and do his work well, I will always be looked after. And that's my fundamental faith in this program. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Veronica. Send you all in silence. No. Go ahead. Thank you so much. I love you. My question is that... Um, when you talk about your red light boots and your yellow light boots and your green light boots, how how does that work in your everyday life? I just go, uh, to the answer is, uh, you know, I talked about my abstinence, yeah, red, yellow, green light foods, and how does it work in my daily life? Yeah, I mean, I don't, my red light foods are alcoholic foods, and I just don't eat them. I just do not eat them. It's like alcohol. I don't drink, so I don't eat them. Uh, my yellow light foods, I pray around. I pray around all my food, but I pray around the yellow light food. If I'm in a particularly difficult place, there's certain foods that I need to avoid. And my green light foods are real healthy foods that I just wouldn't binge on, like salads and, you know, all the real nice, healthy, organic foods and the rest of it. So, you know, I clearly define it. But it's the behaviours that are very important as well. So I talked about, I don't eat my car. I don't eat off other people's plates. I don't uh, go in diners late at night when it's all lonely and miserable. I don't go in fast food places. Uh, I don't stand and eat. Don't stand and eat. So, you know, this sort of habit forming. The food part of the program is very much about re 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 redeveloping good habits around food. And then the other big thing is, um, you know, I'm very honest. Every night I send my food in. Always have for eight years. Never ever miss a day. So... I've got all these emails going back eight and a half years every single day I've ever eaten. It works. It really does. Go ahead. Um, you spoke a little bit about uh, cooking or doing salt and stuff, and I imagine that was like a journey. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And the question was, uh, talked a little bit about, I don't really cook, I prepare food. Uh, 
with the journey uh, from from where I am to now. I, when I came into OA, I, I had no idea about portion size or calories. Um, I couldn't understand why I was so obese because I didn't think I was overeating. But I realized if I ate a whole bag of nuts, it's like 10,000 calories in one bag. And, you know, if I didn't eat that, I'd be okay. So I started learning a lot about food and, and reading a lot about food. Uh, I know a lot about nutrition, though that's not really served me very well in terms of, you know, once the disease is set in, it doesn't matter. I can tell you every single calorie and every single food. But I'm still going to compulsively eat if I'm not working a program. But it's uh, I uh, where it's gone for me now is... Uh, I've learned a lot about exercise and, and a lot about nutrition, and that is a big component of my of my program. So um, it's developed with reading books and, and having a great sponsor. One thing, folks, find a really great OA sponsor because they they're just worth the weight in gold. Pardon the pun, and uh, they help me as well. So I don't know if that answered it. Thank you. That's it. All right. Great.